The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Happy New Year, everybody, and thanks for joining me for the conversation today. My first show back in 2022, which is is pretty amazing to even be saying that out loud, (laughs) but welcome everybody to the show. Doing what I do, I get a lot of books sent to me, which is actually a dream come true. I'm not complaining about about this at all because I love books and I love to read. When the book How to Be by journalist Judith Valenti and Trappist monk brother Paul Quinnen landed on my desk, it immediately caught my attention. And the first thing that I saw as I was looking through the the bios and, and the paperwork that the publicist sent me was a quote from an interview between Judith and brother Paul for a PBS news program where he was asked, what was the purpose of the Trappist life in the modern world? And his answer was to show you that you don't need a purpose. The purpose of life is life. So that just hit me over the head. I was struck right away and I felt a sense of relief, like, really? I can stop now? This is amazing. So I picked up the book. I just started reading and I just, I finished it right away. So I'm really excited to talk about this today. Judith and brother Paul joined me. Judith is a celebrated journalist and the author of four other books on spirituality, who has been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in journalism twice. And she's won many awards for her coverage of faith and culture for PBS TV's Religion and Ethics News Weekly. And she's also been a staff writer for both the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. And Brother Paul Quinnen entered the Trappist Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky in 1958 at the age of 17 where Thomas Merton was his novice master and spiritual director. And he's also the author of the award-winning book In Praise of the Useless Life, A Monk's Memoir, as well as Nine Collections of Poetry. And welcome both of you to the show and for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. I'm a little nervous because you both have such incredible credentials. I hope I I do a good job. But no, I'm it's, uh, it's all a lot of fluff. So <laughs> just just think of us naked, and you'll you'll be okay. <laughs> right, the old trick. Think think of you in your underwear, and, yeah. and it'll all be great. But I'm I'm really happy to be talking with you about the book because the the lessons that you bring up in the conversations in this book are just incredible. It's actually uh, a monk and a journalist reflect on living and dying, purpose and prayer, forgiveness and friendship. So lots of great topics to dive in today. But just to get a little bit of the beginning out of the way of how how you first met and got together, you met in 2008 
when Judith, you did an interview with Brother Paul for PBS about the 40th anniversary of the death of Thomas Merton. And you both shared a love of poetry, I guess, that kind of helped to spark the friendship. Judith, I'll start with you. What were some of your first impressions of Brother Paul and and the Abbey and all of that? Well, the first thing you notice is the amount of silence. Um, you, You enter this palpable silence when you go to a place, a Trappist monastery, like the Abbey of Gethsemane. In fact, um, uh, the first sign that you see when you go from the parking lot up the walkway to the Abbey Church is silence. And then you come to another sign that says, God alone, which is over an archway. And so you really do feel as though you're entering a different reality. And when I met Brother Paul, I was just um, really struck by the authenticity of the man and just how spontaneous and how much himself he was. You know, you you mentioned about, you know, those silly accolades and everything that, that people mention and where, where one works and uh, that sort of thing. Well, there was none of that about him. Um, he was just completely himself. And we connected on our mutual love of poetry. I write poetry, he wrote poetry, and we connected on a personal level on that and as well, as well as what I was there to talk to him about, which was Thomas Merton. And Paul, what were your impressions? My impressions of Judith was that, well, she seemed she know, like she knows her business and uh, she uh, got down to work, but then also was, you know, quite uh, agreeable to having conversations about other things. Um, uh, we we walked up to the Hermitage and walked back, and so that was kind of a uh, a leisure moment where we could you know become acquainted. And uh, as you as she said, you know we had some common interests. And well, the fact that she would come here uh, visit the monastery, and she was interested in Thomas Burton, and so uh, I'm uh, you you meet the most interesting people. When it comes to Thomas Merton, I mean, who come here uh, and are readers of Thomas Merton, they're always rather intriguing. Yeah, I have I have a little quote from Thomas Merton that someone gave me when when my mother passed from Thoughts on Solitude, and I've, I've always loved his writings, Thomas Merton, and you were and you worked with him very closely. And we could talk a little bit about that as well. But I wanted to ask you also about your love of poetry that kind of brought you together and and sparked the friendship. And do you think that poetry will continue to live on in future generations like Amanda Gorman, the youngest inaugural poet in history? I mean, when you look back at some of the older poets, you know, like Emily Dickinson and and those classics, I mean, do you think there's a bright future for poetry in the future? Oh, I do definitely. Uh, it's just one of those things that uh, can will never will never cease, uh, simply because it is so close to the quick uh, of the way we feel, the way we perceive things. Not everybody necessarily uh, can see and feel things that way, but many people do. I don't think that's ever going to change. Um, if they, I would say the more people get their their heads drowned out by media and by noise, 
it's going to be more difficult. But there are people who can get away from it, and writing poetry is one way of doing it. And do you agree, Judith, do you think that in this age of social media and, and all these distractions that something like poetry will continue to live on? I truly do, uh, Diane. If you look at Instagram, which is very popular with, with younger people now, um, it's full of poetry. People are always putting uh, excerpts of poems, little little clips of poems on Instagram. And I think this this generation, what's being called Generation Z now, uh, the 13 to 25 year olds, they put a big premium on on what's genuine. And Marianne Moore, the great 20th century poet, poet called poetry a place for the genuine. And um, that's why I think it's it's thriving. It's not only surviving, it's thriving and will live on. Well, that's good news. <laughs> it seems quaint, I guess, to talk about poetry, but it's nice to hear that you both feel that it will continue to, to live on and thrive. And this the book is laid out, the way it's put together is a, a series of letters between you two. And, and how long was the correspondence in, in this book over what period of time? Well, I think we actually started way back in 2013, I think would have been would have been the first letter that I recall, and that would have that would have corresponded with when we finished a, a previous book together, which our love of poetry um, brought us to talking about our love of the Japanese haiku, and which is a three-line poem. And Brother Paul told me that he wrote a, a Japanese haiku, a three-line poem every day as part of his meditation practice, and we exchanged a haiku a day for something like three years. So somewhere between 2009 and 2012 or 13, we exchanged a haiku a day. And then we we thought we would write some short reflections, three paragraph reflections to go through it, to, to go with them. And that became our book, The Art of Pausing, Meditations for the Overworked and Overwhelmed. And you know, when we finished that book, we were of course writing back to each other and there were there were some significant things going on at that time. You know, Brother Paul lost a, uh, a brother, his older one of his older brothers, and um, a couple of my friends, older friends, had passed away. And we began to write to each other on these important matters. And I, I just kept feeling, you know, Brother Paul's letters were so full of insight and wisdom that they shouldn't just be for my eyes only. They should. I should be able to share them with other people. And then I don't know if you want to pick up with the rest of the story, Brother Paul, how then we started to really intentionally write each other letters. Well, I think that uh, uh, the discussion about doing a book together went on for about five years, but it, never, it really didn't move forward until you were free of your job and had time. At that point, we had decided on a list of topics uh, which we thought would be interesting to other people and which were uh, of mutual interest to us. And uh, then we just proceeded as, um, as time allowed. Uh, you would write a letter, I would answer it, and then you would answer my letter. And that went on for about a year and a half. Well, yeah, I, longer, yeah. 
I love the whole concept of letters. And I mean, I'm, and the reason is, I guess I'm, I'm kind of romantic about the written word too, and about letters and, you know, nobody really sends letters anymore. The only thing I get in the mail is, is bills at, at this stage. Um, and I will tell people that you, you agreed to email the letters as attachments. So there is, you know, some emailing going on, but, but they are actually letters. And I, I wanted to talk about just that form because I, I love letters. I still send, send Christmas cards. I'm probably one of the few people that I know that writes it out, puts a stamp on it and sends it out there. But I think there's a different kind of energy into doing it that way. And I just wanted to see what you felt are the advantages of kind of sitting down and pausing and, and writing in that way. Well, these letters, they really were things that we sat and pondered over, even though we typed them. I mean, they were just typed letters because both of our handwritings leave something to be desired. And, um, so we thought, well, the easiest way we could we could read each other's words legibly would be to type them. And so, but they really, you know, as Brother Paul said, they really we really did sit down and ponder and reflect on what we were going to to say to one another. Yes, and since you know the part, the intention was eventually to publish them, uh, I couldn't be careless about it. So I would revise definitely so that we have something that. Uh, um, not only the other person would enjoy, but uh, any occasional reader might enjoy. And of course, it wasn't even perfect after that. Uh, the, the publishers did, did their, their own amount of, of editing, which in the end made it a better book, I believe. Well, you can tell you really put thought into it. And I guess that was that was the point I was getting at of, of like pausing, you know, and, and taking a minute to really think about what you're going to write and the message that you want to send. When a lot of times I think we'll fire off an email. I know I've, I've fired off some that were not well received that I probably should have thought about before I sent that. So I think there's something in that process, you know, of, of taking a minute and, and writing it down, whether it's a paper letter or, or an email letter like you did. Yeah, so, I think you're right about that. Yeah, even even emails can be a, a work of art, although it's it's not like a letter. Yeah, not the same as getting the getting the paper, you, you know, the excitement of, of opening up a letter. And I don't know, maybe those days might be fading, unfor unfortunately. I'm well, still going to hang on to the Christmas card, though. Mm -hmm. Me too. <laughs> As Emily Dickinson said, uh, a letter is a joy of earth deprived the gods. It is a joy. It's a joy to receive. And Judith, as I was reading the book, I, I wanted to ask you about this because I, I felt that we had a lot in common. Like I resonated with a, a lot of your story and some of the things you shared in the letters of Brother, Brother Paul. Um, I mean, I, I grew up Catholic. I had a very focused worth at work ethic. I mean, I had big dreams. Like I started as a rock DJ in Florida because I had such a love of music and, and I still do. But I thought I'm going to go to the big market. I'm going to New York and LA and I'm going to be the big star. And that's to to the exclusion of, of all else. You know, I was just so focused on on doing that. And I, and I saw that in your kind of career tra trajectory where, you know, you were climb, climbing the ladder and just how much importance that we put on that. And 
a few years ago, I was in a situation that you described as far as leaving a job, you know, taking a new challenge, being in that part of stage of your life where you're, you're making those kind of decisions and how and how scary it is. So I really resonated with the idea of taking a leap into uncertainty. And you talk about that with with Brother Paul. I just was hoping you could share a little bit about your thoughts on that, taking that leap and overcoming that fear. Well, one thing Brother Paul said in one of the letters um, resonated, and it might with your listeners as well, that your you know your purpose in life changes over time that you don't have to be doing the same thing all the time or doing keep doing the same thing because you do it well. And, you know, he was almost giving me permission to, I, I, I likened it, and you might have had this feeling too, of, of, of stepping off an, off an edge into open air and trying to walk on the air. And, you know, that's how I felt, you know, after leaving my, you know, long career in journalism to do retreats and to write spirituality books. Um, but he, he seemed to understand that, that, um, you know, our call and our purpose does change over time. And that's a, that can be a good thing, a healthy thing. I think so. And Paul, I wanted to ask you your take on this, because as I was reading the book, I mean, and I'm someone who for years, I put a lot of my identity and ideas of success into what I do. You know, it's all wrapped up into that. This is who I am. This is what I do. And reading your experiences of the work life in the monastery and how you found something agreeable in just about anything that you did, I thought that was really interesting. You know, we can find meaning and, and happiness in, in what we're doing right now. So I wanted to get your take on that, that false importance that we put on the idea of we are what we do and and how that's that's so so screwy i guess are well i think importance. a lot of it depends on uh whether you have a core identity to begin with in other words an identity that doesn't depend on what you do or how you look or uh what your past is or what your race is you know, the, you know, there's the, the the core identity, which Merton calls the true self, is something that is certainly in in, in it animates everything we do, but it transcends that, and you can tr gain that kind of identity in prayer. I believe that's one of the benefits of living a life of prayer and contemplation, is that. Your identity is in the face of God, and God's gaze upon you is what gives you that sense of being loved and uh, being answerable to, to something beyond this and that and all the things that we take to be of ultimate importance are not of ultimate importance, including the jobs you have. Now, I, I just happen to be uh, uh, flexible in nature, I guess, because I came here young, and you, you just do what comes next, whatever they tell you to do. And so I'm I'm used to, you know, get, bouncing back and forth, and that's that's a, a, a real advantage. And I wanted to ask you about your vocation. You, you mentioned that you went there 
uh, you came as a, a young man, you were, you were 17 and you talk about vocation in the book. And I, and I was interested in this, in the feeling of being called to a vocation. And uh, I've read, um, you know, things from psychologist Abraham Maslow about the idea of a peak experience. And would that being called to a vocation, would that be similar to a peak experience? Well, it may or it may not. Um, not everybody ha- has the kind of, well, well, right away in their religious uh, development, have that kind of peak experience. Now, maybe for some people, that's the thing that really triggers it and, you know, gets and launches a, a, a religious quest. On the other hand, it may not come until much later on in your in your development. Um, but I, I think there is uh, um, something of that in any any authentic um, re- religious uh, development. It's like um, you have to have some some great love. Uh, which motivates you. And love, of course, is as peak of an experience as you can have. I don't think of it in those terms necessarily. Um, I think of love as more like a uh, uh, a steady state <laughs> in which, you know, I, I move from day to day uh, and I am motivated by a very quiet and implicit kind of love. And then sometimes it, it does rise uh, to a crescendo. Um, it may even have been at a peak at certain times, but um, I don't. I don't search for that sort of an experience. As soon as you, as you start looking for it and expecting it, you you ruin it. That's interesting because I've been looking for that experience and now I know why I'm not finding it because maybe I'm looking too hard. And Judith, what do you think about that? Like your love of writing, I mean, was that a calling that you felt early on in your life? Maybe not a peak experience at that time, but something you really wanted to do. No, it really was a peak experience. I mean, I remember being four years old and people asking me, what did I want to be when I grew up? And I'd say, I want to be a writer. And where did that come from? You know, it had to come from a call, a call from someone, as Brother Paul would say, maybe a call from God. And, you know, I remember sitting in my backyard and looking at the, the neighbor's clothesline and making up stories to go with the different the different articles of clothing that was on the that was on the clothesline. You know, where does that come from? It it, it comes from somewhere inside of you. And so um, some, someone asked me a, an interesting question. Uh, who came and, and to a reading that Brother Paul and I did from the book. And they said to me, "Did do you think that your life was always leading you to this point where you're writing these spirituality books? And I thought, yeah, yeah, that had to have always been inside of me. And, you know, the journalism was one manifestation of that. You know, I worked as a journalist from the time I was 17 <clears throat> to just a few years ago. And um, that was not wasted time. You know, that was all part of the, the whole thing. And so, yeah, I do, I do believe that there, you know, there was that steady vocation or call inside of me 
to be a writer. Now I just happen to do this kind of writing as opposed to the journalism. Right, right. That's that's so amazing because I'm thinking of equating it to my experience of, you know, wanting to, I guess, be a, a performer or, you know, be on the air and, you know, being in a totally different world. And then how it somehow has circled around to talking to people like you and Brother Paul and, and all these amazing people that I get, get to talk to through doing the show and, and working with Unity. And if you had told me back then, I don't, I don't know what I would have, would have believed if that was possible, you know? So I guess it's interesting where there's kind of the, the vocation or the direction you start out in and then where that road kind of twists and turns into where you, where you end up. And then who knows what's going to happen, you know, after, after this, something, something interesting, but, but Paul, I guess you were, you were pretty, pretty sure at an early age what you wanted to do. Well, yes, I was. I wanted to be a monk, and uh, writing was not that much of a part of my life um, until after Merton died, which was in 1968. So, so that's 10 years right there. And uh, he appreciated the poems that I would write from now and then. Uh, and that was kind of an encouragement. But I didn't write many until after he died. And then Oh, a few more as the years went by. Uh, and I admired, um, I, I love reading, reading good literature, and I admire a good spiritual book. Um, I really didn't have writing as such to be a part of my life until eventually some publisher from Canada came on retreat and started asking me questions and I had uh, a collection of poems to show him and well he he was really liked them and, and ended up publishing them so after that uh, it's in other words the, the writing uh, business came my way I, I didn't really uh, go to uh, with all but uh, with both hands trying to catch it and that's still my attitude. Well, if something comes along, uh, I'll see if I can, you know, I'll, I'll cooperate with it. And this idea that Judith had of doing a book together was a good example. I like that. I like that attitude of it kind of coming to you. I have a quote that sits on my desk because I'm not the most patient person. And it's from Lao Tzu. Do you have the patience to wait until your mud settles and the water is clear? And the right answer arises by itself. So I always try to remember that and then have, you know, thing, things do come your way. I'm talking with Judith Valenti and brother Paul Quinnen about their book, How to Be. Just kind of uh, talking about life, love, and some other amazing topics that they bring up in the book. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back.
Human Design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum Human Design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Be Present, the Diane Ray Show. Thanks for joining me for the conversation. I'm talking with Judith Judith Valenti and brother Paul Quinnen about their book, How to Be, A Monk and a Journalist Reflect on Living and Dying, Purpose and Prayer, Forgiveness and Friendship. Some very deep topics that they get into in this book. And one of my favorite chapters that I wanted to bring up is called The Hungry Sheep. And this is where Judith questions you, Brother Paul, on the future of the church, some some heavy questions, why women are not ordained. And and Judith, I've I've felt this feeling of of despair, I guess, of wanting to have more of a, a closeness with spirit and not really feeling it in the church. And and so I haven't gone in, in quite some time, you know, because of that. Um and Paul, what did what did you think about when this topic came up? when Judith shared those feelings of despair and uh, I guess kind of being let down in, in a sense? Well, it wasn't surprising and I, I can understand it. Um, I'm kind of spoiled. Uh, I'm in, in a good position. I'm not sure I would be a Catholic if I wasn't in a monastery. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is uh, I'm in a privileged position we have an excellent liturgy here. Uh, I find it nu- nutritious. And uh, I've had a rather enlightened kind of formation uh, and education here uh, where, you know, a lot of the kind of narrow concepts people developed, developed in the church uh, were, you know, clarified and, you know, tr- treated intelligently. Not everybody seems to have benefited by that here, but I, I, I certainly think I did. Not that I'm, I might be narrow-minded to some people, but the, and the, the whole issue of the women was something that really had me frustrated for years. Um, and I, you know, as far as I'm concerned, um, I, I don't see any problem with ordaining women myself. Uh, well, there are problems in the minds of some people, but, and, you know, they're not totally invalid, but nevertheless, I, you know, we're all baptized, and the baptism gives you, you know, the access to all the other sacraments, according, according to canon law. And so, um, you know, it's kind of sad because, uh, you know, our nuns are now required to go without mass because they can't always get a chaplain the nuns in california the sister trappistine nuns at redwoods and other monasteries is kind of pathetic 
they can't just ordain one of their women who would be mentally and spiritually and emotionally totally capable of doing what a priest can do. <laughs> and, and yet that's not happening. And as you wrote in the book, this has been talked about since the 70s, right? Oh, yes. That these changes would take place and, and maybe they will someday. Uh, I hope so. I mean, Judith, maybe you could comment a little about the feelings that you had as far as, you know, maybe feelings of disconnection or, or despair on where things are going. I mean, you you write about, you know, not a lot of people are beating the door down to get into a, a monastery or to follow that. I mean, what, what do you think is the future? Well, I think um, lay people will be the future. And that's something the Catholic Church still doesn't recognize well. I mean, Brother Paul is, is very, very progressive compared to a lot of the officials in the Catholic Church right now. Um, you know, the, the, the future is with the lay people. The lay people are getting educated in the theology. Um, they're as knowledgeable as or more than many of these young priests coming out of the seminary. And yet um, our church continues to put the focus on these, this male clergy. Um, as if that was there was something uh, extraordinary about that that the fem the female of the species can't enter into, and I think um, more and more people are not are not buying that. I don't think it's it's scriptural scriptural, or um, I don't think it's something that Christ, uh, you know, would would go for himself. I mean, he was he was constant. I mean, there were women around Christ all the time, um, and he, and the way Christ treated women was. An example for all of us. So um, I do think in terms of monastic life, while uh, men and women are not making a lifetime commitment as Brother Paul did, nor are they entering at the age that Brother Paul did, there are many, many, many lay people who are now um, living the, the, the monastic values of, of, of hospitality, humility, simplicity, consensus, community building. They're, they're living those values in their daily lives, and they're following, you know, many of us, including myself, follow the monastic uh, prayer rhythms. You know, we say, that, we say the same prayers that they say in the monastery, and there are now probably three times as many lay associates of monasteries as, the, as there are men and women living in the monasteries. So that tells you something. That tells you how the Holy Spirit is working. But I think it goes over the head of not so much our Pope. I think our Pope has his head on straight, but I don't, I don't know about our American bishops or our American Catholic leaders. I mean, they're over there right now in Washington, uh, or, or they, they've been in recent months in Washington talking about who should get communion and who shouldn't get communion. That's, 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 not, that's not it. You know, that's, that's not what we need to be talking about. Right, right. There's much bigger issues uh, than that, for sure. And I was just thinking of, uh, I went to an event a few years ago called the Parliament of the World Religions. I was telling Judith about it a little bit before we started uh, talking. And it was about 200 different faith traditions, but there were a group of women there that I spoke to, and it was women Roman Catholic priests. So I stopped at their booth and I said, "How how is this possible that you're doing this? And I guess they're doing it, but it's obviously not fully sanctioned, right? Or not it's really not at recognized. All, it's at all sanctioned. Um, but but, but there, there are some bishops who will ordain women because they believe it's it's the right thing and they believe it's Christ-centered. 
Um, and so it's an, it's an example of, of the people of God being ahead of the leadership of the church. I, I don't know, Brother Paul, I was surprised at how, at how progressive Brother Paul is on this issue. So I, I want to give him a chance to weigh in, too. Oh, well, I, I don't know what to say about it. I, I mean, it, it can be simply willfulness and it can be it, it becomes more of a political issue than a real spiritual and sacramental issue. I think uh, some women are doing this to make a statement about being a woman rather than really answering to an inner inner call. Uh, there are some women who really do have an inner call and um, they're kind of at an impasse. A, a Carmelite nun, Connie Fitzgerald, talks about the women's experience of impasse is a kind of a dark night of the soul for many. And with the dark night of the soul, you don't know if you're going to get through it, for one thing. And it's just one of those things that uh, God has to take care of. I hope someday, one way or another, God will take care of each one of these women and take care of the church. Maybe we'll see that in our in our lifetime. It it could be could be possible. And I wanted to ask you about. Um, there was just so many amazing concepts in the book. I know I won't have time to go over everyone that I'd want to ask you about. But in the chapter on prayer, you introduced a concept that I hadn't heard before from Saint Augustine. Toto simul. Is that right? Did I say it? Toto simul. Uh, right. Okay. Well, what, what struck me about this, about the concept, I've read a lot of books from people that have described a near-death experience, and that's what they describe, is that notion of time being in one moment, past, present, and future. And I thought, wow, is that, are they describing an afterlife? Is that what he was talking about? Or is that, or is that something different? But in the description from these people, that's what they're saying is that the t is that time is like that all at once. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I haven't read any of that literature, and it certainly lines up with the metaphysics uh, of Saint Augustine and Boethius and uh, and others uh, about all things and all time are summed up in eternity as one reality. There was a well, particular book, I don't know, you might come across it, uh, by a woman named Anita Morajani. It's called Dying to Be Me. And she describes her experience in the afterlife that whatever you put your attention on, you can be there in an instant. You could go back into the past, present, or future at, at any time. There is no linear time like we think of it. And I just thought it was interesting that... Uh, St. Augustine, there's actually a word for it. Toto simo, all things one. Toto all simo, together. But in this chapter, though, in, in prayer, you're talking about is that when you when you are in or, or you're you're in that moment of trying to communicate in prayer, do you feel that it's all things are happening in, in one one time? 
Well, no, I can't say I've uh, felt that particularly. Uh, maybe that's a peak moment I have yet to, to have, and I'm pretty sure I'll have it at, at my death. I guess, right? That's when we all find out what happens. I, yeah. I hope my last words are, wait, what? Like, just, <laughs> I, ho I hope that it's just all of a sudden I'm awake in another place or whatever happens. I don't know. What do you think of that, though? People that say they know exactly what happens after death. Don't you think that's crazy that the only people that really know that are the ones that are not here? Well, I, you know, I, I can't question their experience. It's their experience. Uh, who am I to say it's, it's not that? Uh, I, I think spiritual knowledge of any kind comes through experience. And this is, seems to be rather universal. There's there's a kind of irregularity about the, uh, how these are ex, are uh, expressed. What do you when think about that, Judith? Do we yeah, think too much about heaven and it's all going to be great later on and yeah, not worry about what's happening now? I don't think so much about heaven and what it's going to be like as I do about this this continuum that that Brother Paul was talking about. Um, because I, I like the, the writings of Irish theologian John O'Donohue, uh, who, who passed all too early. He died at the age of 53, oh, maybe 10 years ago or so. And, but he wrote, he wrote about this. He wrote about how you know, we, were, we were someplace before we were born. And now we're in this life. And then we're, you know, we're going to be someplace when we die. But it's all part of a continuum. And he, he uses a phrase called, he uses a phrase of, eternal echoes, eternal echoes, in that he talks about how the spirit of a person leaves its imprint in the ether of a place. And how many times have you entered a room? You know, we, you, we, we met, brother mentioned the hermitage earlier. He meant the hermitage that Thomas Merton lived in in the last three years of his life. He lived as a hermit in this cinder block cabin. You go in there, and you feel the presence of Thomas Merton. And I think that's what happened when people in the Catholic tradition, they go and they sit before the blessed sacrament, say, in a, in a, in a chapel, and they feel Christ's presence, or they take communion and they come back to their seat, they feel the presence of Christ. So I think that's, that's kind of when we are in that continuum and and we're we're part of that eternal echo that John O'Donohue talks about. That's beautiful. I love that. So kind of it we just we just continue on. There's no like really no no past, no future, or just it, it kind of goes on into eternity, which I guess is hard for us to really wrap our heads around anyway when you think about eternity. Right. That's because we, we big don't... concept. We don't remember where we were when we were when we were in the womb. We don't remember that. We, we we just we just have this present consciousness. And who's to say, you know, what kind of consciousness we'll have beyond this this current life? Do you think there are other lives? Or are you open to that concept, or not so much? I'm, I'm, it's a mystery. I mean, I think it's 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 as good as any any supposition that uh, one can have about what is going to be, the, what's beyond this consciousness that we're in now. I mean, we had to have been conscious in the womb. We just don't remember it. And um, 
there must be some, perhaps some sort of broader, and that's what Brother Paul writes about in the book, some sort of broader consciousness that we go into um, when we die. Right. And I would say that it's not something that's ethereal and uh, simply a faint echo, but actually it's more vivid than what we experience now. When we get there, we'll say, oh, well, this is the way it should have been all the time. Oh, that's a that's a great take on on uh, what O'Donoghue said. Yeah. Uh huh. Do you think that'll happen? So when when we do have that moment when we pass away, that it'll be just kind of a a, a comfortable situation, like oh, this is familiar. You kind of like a going home. No, I I don't think it's necessarily going to be that way, because uh, uh, once we're you know relieved of our the material limitations which we have as a body in space and a mind in time, uh, we will have access to all space and all time, as uh, that, that lady said. And every moment of my present life will become present to me from this perspective of eternity. If I have lived badly, if I have harmed a lot of people and hurt other people, I'm gonna see that in a more vivid way than I did in this life and i will not only see it as a, a, something to that i can repeat in my mind but i will see it from the other person's point of view and by empathy i will be able to experience that as we grow in love we have more empathy for other people so as i as i grow in the divine love in eternity i will i will see what they felt from their point of view and that's kind of a, sometimes that's like an idea of hell in a, in a sense. Would it, would that be true? Well, I'd say it's more like purgatory. Now, if that's all you've had in your life, it's, it's, it's hellish. Yes. Behavior. And uh, then, uh, you know, God, God help them. I'm not, I don't think I'm that hell is all the ultimate reality. Uh, I think God is big enough to be able to sort every soul out into the, the the eternal bliss, one way or another. How that is, I don't know, but I I kind of agree with Origen, the you know the third century father of the church. You know that ultimately even the devil would be re re released from hell. That's interesting. Well, I think we all want or we expect a sense of fairness, right? Like we want the evildoer to pay somehow for what what they did is that just a human thing that we cling on to that we think it's all going to be fair in the end well i think if if you read the gospel christ 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 just wants the evil doer to have a moment of recognition a moment of of um oh what would you how would you call it uh, uh a moment of conversion, and, and and I think the Pope talks about that. You know, the most important thing is 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 that is the conversion of lives rather than the punishment of lives. I don't know if Brother Paul sees it differently. I would agree with that. Yeah, it's, I, you know, we we talk about well, once you once you die, things are fixed. They're going to be the way they always have been. I I don't think so. I think we're going to be much more capable of change in the next life than we are now. And as a result, um, we, I think there's still a chance for repentance. 
I like that. that. That's, that's a personal opinion. That's uh, very helpful. No, that helps. <laughs> that helps. I like that. You see, now, Diane, you don't get these discussions in the in the ordinary church. You know, you have to you have to go to a monastery to get these kinds of discussions. No, I yeah, I need I need to go. I would love to visit sometime. I I, I always I have this romantic notion of like monastery life, and you shared a little bit about what it's actually like in the book, but it just sounds, it sounds so blissful. Or if you do a retreat, Judith, at a monastery, I'll have to come because the silence and everything sounds wonderful. <laughs> it sounds heavenly. Now I wanted to ask you too about the chapter on friendship. I really love this and you have a wonderful friendship. We, you know, we can read and, and feel in, in what you're writing in the book and and Judith, you talk a little bit about what I'm experiencing now in my life, like the ebb and flow of, of friendships and trying to maintain ties with people where sometimes all you have is that history and your your life is so different. And you, you shared that about a, a friendship that you had. And I just wondered if you could could comment on that, like the Im- importance of friendships to you and, and to you, Paul, and how they kind of morph and change. Yeah, well, there, there's a there's a beautiful work on on friendship uh, by Saint Alred of Riveau, and um, he talks about how friendship is 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 like a training ground for experiencing the love of Christ, because a true in a true friendship, what matters is your care for the other person. You're you're wanting the other person to be the the genuine person that they can be. Um, not what can the other person do for me type of thing. And um, I was very, you know, Brother Paul, I wouldn't have known about St. Allred if Brother Paul hadn't told me about his writings on friendship. But um, they're, very, they're very beautiful. And, they, and he talks about friendship as a way that we access, access the love of God. And how do you feel about that, Brother Paul? Like friendships that you've made in the monastery, Did things kind of ebb and, ebb and flow like they do for us here? Oh, yes. Um, it, it, at a certain point in my life, it, it uh, was difficult to see relationships ebb. And a lot of that is just simply circumstance. You know, they, they move away. Um, uh, you know, things just kind of lapse to the side. And there again, you know, I think we have to th- we have to look at things in, in from the point of view of eternity. Uh, nothing is lost. Everything that is good in our past is part of that eternal imprint that we're making, and uh, it can perhaps even be expanded and deepened. You know, in the, the heavenly spheres. I don't even like using that that phrase, but uh, we. We are now planting seeds. Every friendship is a seed of something that's going to be greater than anything we've known about it in this life. I have that hope. I have that optimism. And so a friendship never gets lost. Uh, I can meet friends that I you know, haven't had in contact with maybe in 10 years, and it's all just blooms out again. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow, you know, we're, we're at it again. So I think uh, when we're totally liberated, uh, that can all happen and come together. I do have friendships that I've had for long periods of time where you can pick it up just like you describe. And then there's other people that you may never see again or your paths don't cross. 
Although I don't know, do you do Facebook? Sometimes you can't escape those people. They're there from high school, grade school. They come back. But monks I, don't do Facebook. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. Do monks do Facebook? And it's good. It's good that you don't. But do you think people come? I've heard the term. You know, people come in your life for a reason or a season. Is that generally the case? I, I totally agree with that. Yes, I do too. Yeah, one of the things I talk about in the book is having this breast cancer scare, and it ended up not being breast cancer. But um, there were there were people that just popped up in my life at that moment that I I really needed to draw from their wisdom. I mean, they were they were breast cancer survivors, and it was it would be just by happenstance that I would come across them. And so they, I mean, I was afraid to tell anybody in my family because I didn't want to worry them before I got. The, the, the news that it really wasn't breast cancer. But um, so I couldn't tell anybody, only my husband knew. And a lot of my close friends didn't even know. And then there were these strangers who would pop into my life who would be a breast cancer survivor and I could talk to them. So yes, you know, absolutely um, they did that. And of course I was able to talk to brother Paul. He was one of the few people I also told, not right away, but I did tell him. Right. That's it. What's it's so beautiful to read your friendship in the book, and and to to feel that uh, I really did. I really felt it. It's been. I mean, we're running out of time. There's still so many things I want to talk to you about. But as as of this airing, we're in 2022, which is is crazy. But what what are your hopes for the the future, Brother Paul? Things you want to work on this year? Oh well. Um... My hopes is that uh, I get another book written. Uh, actually, right now I'm going through my journals, uh, starting from 1970, seeing what can be salvaged, and I'm rewriting it uh, in, in a presentable form. And hopefully, I, I, eventually, I have enough for another book. And whether anybody wants to publish it or not, at least it's a good way of passing my time. And what about you, Judith? What are your plans? Well, I, I hope to um, continue to try to be a more patient person, um, a more understanding person. My hope is that our country begins to see that we need to come together. Um, we need to come together more than we need to, to be apart from one another. And I'm, uh, my cancer scare has made me uh, more anxious to write another book, too. And I'll be, I'll be uh, in in Italy, when this airs, researching a book I've wanted to write for a long time about what Americans can learn from Italians about living the good life. And, um, you know, nothing, nothing like a cancer scare to sort of distill your attention, to focus your attention. So that's what I'll be working on uh, at the, on the moment when this airs. I've really enjoyed the book and, and the time that we've spent today, How to Be a monk and a journalist reflect on living and dying, purpose and prayer, forgiveness and friendship. And thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Diane, for all you do for the soul of the world. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. 
Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.